Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. I promised you a month ago, as part of our Prime Minister's 300 series, that we'd be interviewing a Prime Minister on this podcast, and today I am. Gordon Brown was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, followed Tony Blair in that office, who's also been on the podcast. He was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Finance Minister for the UK before that, so he was no stranger to high office, and he then served as Prime Minister during the economic catastrophe of 2008-2009. He's now written a book about how to save the world, really, what we can do to solve the great challenges we face. Initially, I was pretty concerned that someone who has held the highest political office in one of the world's biggest economies feels the need to leave office and write a book about what we should do about it. But as you'll hear, he talks about the problems that require international agreement and cooperation, as distinct from the competence of national leaders and the power they have within their own states. So it's a really interesting conversation, this, I thought, about where power lies and what is the appropriate level to fix things that need fixing. Neighbourhood, regional, national or international. I'm very grateful to Gordon Brown for coming on. We got close with Theresa May. We got so close, but then Hatim ghosted me. So it must have been something I said. But if you're listening, please come on the pod. It's a safe place. We can talk about your tenure as Prime Minister. If you wish to go back and listen to Tony Blair coming on the podcast, then all you've got to do, all you've got to do is go over to historyhit.tv. It's like Netflix for history. It's like a huge digital history site. We've got hundreds of documentaries on there. We've got thousands of podcasts on there, stretching way back into the past. There's some real gems on there. And you just go to historyhit.tv for a very small subscription. You become a member. You become part of this mad journey that we have set out on, and it's getting more and more exciting all the time. So head over to historyhit.tv, everyone. But in the meantime, here is Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. A pleasure. Pleasure. It must be very exciting to write a book basically called How to Save the World. I don't think it's as brave as that or as bold as that. I think what I'm saying is we're at a turning point. History can turn either for the good or it can turn for the bad. We know what's wrong, though we've seen in the pandemic our failure to cooperate. We know it's not working when it comes to climate change. We know that even with all the ability and expertise we have, we don't seem to be able to deal with the economic crises that hit the world. And of course, we've got these sustainable development goals that every country has signed up to, but have no chance of being realized. 
because we don't cooperate well enough. So the turning point is this. We have seen what has gone wrong. I think we now know what needs to be done. The question is, will we do it? And that's why the big international meetings this year, the G7, the G20, the UN itself, the review of the non-proliferation treaty on nuclear weapons, and COP26, which is going to happen in Glasgow, all these are important tests now of whether the world, which failed to cooperate last year, dismally and abjectly failed to cooperate when we could have stopped the virus more successfully, whether the world is going to wake up to the need for cooperation and actually cooperate to deal with some of these most pressing problems. So that's what I'm trying to bring the world's attention to. You ran through them there, but each chapter of the book is about one of these problems. You've got health, financial instability, education, environment, nationalism, and nuclear proliferation. Climate change. Yeah, the climate crisis. And and I deal with this issue of tax and and why there's so much inequality and why we've done so little to deal with tax havens, something that was addressed last Friday at the G7 meeting of finance ministers, but we haven't yet got the the solution to this that would bring about a fairer taxation system. I kept thinking as I was reading your book, I don't know whether I should have been sort of happy or deeply depressed or inspired that you're writing this book now for everything you've learned. And yet you're one of the few incredibly lucky people in the world that has held high executive on earth. And that you still feel that you were unable to make as much a dent into these things as you would have wished. Is that, you know, is the nation state fit for purpose? How did you see your role when you were prime minister? Well, I saw during the global financial crisis that here was a global problem. It wasn't simply a British problem. It actually started in America, spread around the whole world. The whole banking system internationally was at risk. Here was a global problem. And once you decide it is global and not just national, then you need to have globally coordinated responses. And the question was whether the world could come together. So what we did in 2009 was we brought together all the countries under the auspices of what we called the G20. So previously, it was just the West and Japan that met, seven countries. We brought China, India, Africa, all into the picture and said, look, we've got to work together. And I remember the first meeting that I held, the dinner before the day when we made most of our decisions, I quoted Churchill, actually. And I said, in the 1930s, we retreated into protectionism. Everybody went just for themselves. And Churchill said that the world had been resolved to be a resolute, adamant for drift, solid for fluidity and all-powerful for impotence, and we must not make that mistake again. Now, fortunately, in 2009, we did things. So we underpinned the world economy by a trillion dollars of support. We got the banks recapitalized. Some of them had to be nationalized. And we had a plan to get the world moving again with a reform of the architecture of global decision-making so we could deal with pollution and poverty and proliferation and, of course, potentially pandemics. But that never got off the ground. I was out of office. Austerity became the order of the day. People retreated into the silos, import controls, immigration controls. Then we had all sorts of border controls. People kept building walls, not just the Trump wall. There are 66 walls now around the world, half of them built since the Berlin Wall came down. And then we got America first. Then we got China first. Then we got India first. Then we got Russia first. And so my tribe first became the name of the game. And so we retreated into what became a very aggressive nationalism. And once you've got that, you're a million miles away from getting the cooperation that you need because people are thinking only of the self-interest and not thinking of how we could coordinate our activities to deal with these global problems that require global solutions. Internationalism runs through this book. And I find that very interesting. If your experience of being a national leader 
is that we need to become more internationalist. That's a very important lesson, isn't it? Yes, that our interdependence limits our independence, that you've got to share sovereignty. And the issue is not really anymore what power we can have over others. The issue is what power we can have with others working together. And so, yes, I don't want to remove all the benefits we have from national decision-making. And indeed, I understand people's desire to respect their own national identities. But I do think we've got to get a better balance between the national autonomy we desire and the international cooperation we need. Otherwise, as we find with the pandemic, we can't solve the problem. But the pandemic is just a classic example. Nobody's safe till everybody's safe. The disease spreads, and then it mutates, and then it comes to countries that thought they have eradicated it, and even the vaccinated may be affected by a new variant, a new mutation. And so we've recognized in the pandemic we've got to work together or we will um, hang separately. And I think that that's a lesson for climate change. It's a lesson for financial instability, which usually reverberates around the world with contagion through the financial system. And it's a lesson, of course, if we're trying to deal with some of these tax problems that cause so much inequality when people siphon off resources to tax havens, and we haven't yet found a successful way of getting the money back from them. So all these problems require some form of international cooperation. And yet, the order of the day, perhaps the dominant ideology of this age is nationalism. And so we've got to find a way of reconciling these things. We've got to have respect for national identity, but we've got to have a recognition that we need international cooperation. This is something we talk about in this podcast all the time with wonderful thinkers like Anne Applebaum or Barack Obama's advisor, Ben Rhodes. Is it simplistic to say that after World War II, there was a very obvious understanding, a direct understanding from people that fought, lost family, lost property, seen unbelievable destruction of their communities. There was an understanding that nationalism was potentially disastrous and could lead to this kind of conflict. And as we've drifted further, despite our attempts to keep the sort of lessons and the memory of those stories alive, politicians have seen it in their own narrow interest to abandon the attempts at internationalism after World War II. Is that what's going on here? It's partly that. I think what happened after World War II is that people, with the creation of the United Nations, the Bretton Woods Institutions, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank, recognised that we had to work together, that prosperity to be sustained had to be shared, and that if we didn't have international institutions that would work and deliver results, then we'd fall back into the age of nationalism, protectionism, isolationism, and xenophobia. But what happened very quickly after 1945 was obviously the Cold War. And so instead of the United Nations being the the center for security through the Security Council, it became NATO. It became the West organizing its own security. Instead of the World Bank delivering the prosperity that people needed, it became the Marshall Plan, an American initiative that crossed Europe. And of course, Russia was offered the chance to be part of it and refused. So we retreated in a way from the global ambitions to the Cold War, which was, of course, it was inevitable. We had to deal with that. And then came the Washington Consensus. And the Washington Consensus, I think, was if you could just follow what America did, liberalize, privatize, deregulate, concentrate on controlling inflation, then everything would be okay. And of course, it wasn't. And American leadership, of course, has changed. You know, in the 1990s, after the end of the Cold War, George Bush and others were in a unipolar age. But generally, perhaps apart from Iraq, acted multilaterally. 
Now we're in a multipolar age because China and Europe are big players in the international scene. America does not and cannot have it its own way. But in this multipolar age, America has tended to act unilaterally. And so things have got to change. America under Biden is becoming more internationalist. Europe, I think, is becoming more outward looking. Britain has got to find what global Britain actually means because it's not clear at the moment what it does mean. And we've got to avoid this one world, two systems future that would happen if China and America were at loggerheads with each other. And I suggest that even if we can't cooperate on many issues, including human rights, of course, we've got to cooperate on issues that really matter, like the environment. And if we could find a way forward that diminished the power of nationalism in the world and recognized the importance of working together, then we'd be a better place. Very frustrating being a politician and sitting at your desk in Downing Street and knowing these are the big problems that are coming down the slipway towards us. And yet the day-to-day, your kind of poll numbers depend on these totally bizarre, effervescent, transitory, often quite silly things that you also have to deal with. I mean, how do you work on both those planes? I mean, it's fascinating because when you're prime minister, you've got to have a view on what's happening on Coronation Street or EastEnders. You've got to have a view on sport. I don't mind that because I'm a great sports enthusiast and football. And everybody's asking you questions about all these very day-to-day things. And at the same time, well, particularly during the global financial crisis, you're phoning up the Australians in the evening and the Chinese and leaders, and then you're talking to the West Coast of America at another time. So you're really an 18-hour day dealing with international issues. So it is frustrating. But I do think we did show that things can work when people are prepared to work together. And then I'm sorry to say that we relapsed into the nationalism and protectionism and the austerity, which is another form of, if you like, protectionism that we saw during the last decade. I think we're now coming out of it. I think it is a turning point. The question is, can we do enough to show that we can solve problems? Because they're all piling up. It's not just the pandemic. It's the aftermath of the pandemic. It's the short-termism of the financial system. It's the shadow banking system. It's clearly COP26, and if we can't deal with some of the problems of climate change, and that means bringing in the coastal states, it means bringing in the poorest countries in the world. You're listening to Dan Snow's History here. We've got Gordon Brown, former UK Prime Minister, on the podcast. Big time. More after this catastrophic warfare, bloody revolutions and violent ideological battles. I'm James Rogers and over on the Warfare Podcast we're exploring the vast history of ferocious global conflict. We've got the classics. Understandably, when we see it from hindsight, the great revelation in Potsdam was really Stalin saying, yeah, tell me something I don't know. The unexpected. And it was at that moment that he just handed her all these documents that he'd discovered sewn into the cushion of the armchair. And the never-ending. So arguably, every state that has tested nuclear weapons has created some sort of effect to local communities. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on the front line of military history. 
From war to women and a dueling death to boot, Hamilton is a fundamental chapter of the American tale. Join me and a cast of worldly experts to meet the real Alexander Hamilton on American History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. So many of us think that being Prime Minister is this enormous wellspring of power and influence. And yet, if you're on the phone all day to your international partners, did you feel powerful as UK Prime Minister? I felt the UK could lead and it could offer to do things and propose to do things. But I knew we had to get support from other countries to follow. See, I wanted uh, to set a global growth target in 2009 to get us more quickly out of recession. But I couldn't get the support from the Europeans to do so. I wanted us to move very quickly on taxation. The Chinese, all people, didn't want us to take action on tax havens. The environmental summit at Copenhagen in 2009, it really failed because we couldn't get China, India, America to come to the proposals that Europe collectively had agreed. You're always having to try to persuade. But obviously, you have the power of initiative. I used to say of Lloyd George, the prime minister, he took a leap in the dark, looked around and then took another leap. And there's some truth in this. You've got to push your views forward and just hope that you can bring the rest of the world together. Many of the things that a government wants to do, it can only do if it cooperates with other governments. Looking longer term, and your book is typically because you're famous for, you know, you don't just diagnose the problems, you actually have really interesting solutions and often go into quite a lot of detail on what they might be in changing the way the IMF operates, for example. Longer term, how are we going to survive as a species in the face of climate proliferation of nuclear and other weapons, unless we find a way to formalise transnationalism. What's the dream? Where do we want to end up? Well, this is the difficulty. Nationalism is so ingrained at the moment and great power struggles are so endemic that we've got to work stage by stage, issue by issue, institution by institution. So we've got to say, here is a shared problem. Let's have a shared solution. So I say, issue by issue, let's try and solve the problem. And then if we can prove that multinational cooperation is actually in the national interest of every country that's engaged in it, but it will take time. So I say, well, let's go to COP26 and let's put a series of proposals. Let's make sure that we mitigate and adapt the climate change that's hitting the poorest countries. Let's set more ambitious targets for carbon reduction. So we're on the way to get to near net carbon zero far more quickly than is planned at the moment. Let's force companies to disclose their carbon footprint so that instead of companies just making announcements that nobody can prove whether they're going to do this or not, and they say they're going to plant X number of trees and then you don't know whether they do, let's actually then show what their carbon footprint actually is. And I think there's a groundswell of opinion, particularly amongst young people, for this to happen. I mean, the danger at the moment still is that COP26 fails because there's not enough momentum behind the changes that are needed. But I think there's more of a consensus now about the urgency of action. And therefore, some of the proposals I make are very much based on 
what very sensible people around the world, from David Attenborough to Greta Thunberg, are saying about what needs to be done. So I'm listening to the voice of youth and the voice of experience and thinking, well, if I was in power, this is what I think we could actually do, and this is what we could persuade other countries to do. Why do you think, after a career in trying to persuade people and countries, something I've never understood, why is it easier to sell people nationalism and internationalism, when in our personal lives, we all talk regularly about, you know, many hands make light work, takes a village to raise a child, all these expressions in our personal lives and our experiences. And, you know, we know that if you want to achieve things, you've got to work as a team, you derive enormous benefit from sharing problems, sharing loads. Why is it that when you go up a level to strategy and politics, that we're so bad at convincing people of that? Because I think everybody, and I think you as a historian, indeed as a great historian who's written very widely in this, we all need a sense of belonging. We all need an identity. And the old identities that were based on your workplace, your trade union, your religious faith, and your church or synagogue or mosque, these are less salient than they used to be. And it's a lot easier for people to say, well, look, think of your nation, think of the flag, think of your, the history, think of the traditions, think of the culture. And the problem is that patriotism, which is a great sort of thing, that I feel proud of my country, its traditions, its history, its culture, can easily descend into what is I call political nationalism, from a celebration of us, which is being a patriot, to a hatred or a resentment or a dislike or a, a blaming of others. And so nationalism gets its force, I think, from people's need for identity, but also there are huge problems that have got to be confronted, that perhaps we're failing to deal with at the moment, people's economic insecurity, people's sense that our country is not what it used to be, people's feeling that politicians have let them down. And all that feeds this idea that perhaps if you can just play up your national identity and the importance of your own country, then lots of problems would be solved. Now, of course, it's not the case. You can't solve the problems of poverty, pollution, proliferation by simply changing your borders. But it's, in a sense, an easy answer for politicians to weaponize people's sense of belonging and say that the way to solve your problems is to either secede or to operate in relation to other countries in a chauvinistic and xenophobic way. I mean, look at Hungary at the moment. I'm shocked when I see the Hungarian politics where there's hardly any immigration. There's hardly anybody in Hungary who's been born outside the country, maybe 5%. And yet the prime minister has made it a huge issue. Someone said there are more anti-immigrant parties now in Hungary than there are immigrants. Because even in a country with very little immigration, he's weaponized immigration as an issue to force a nationalist perspective that is far more extreme than any form of patriotism. And of course, he's now saying that those Hungarians outside Hungary should be brought back into Hungary. He's now blaming the European Union that he's got an enemy. So nationalism thrives on having enemies and inventing enemies even where they don't exist. So it's a moral effort. Orwell wrote about this, the difference between patriotism and nationalism. Us is patriotism. Us versus them is nationalism. And it can only be dealt with and addressed by a moral effort to put the positive case for empathy, reciprocity, solidarity with other people. And yes, you're right. People say, far better if we work together. But we've got to make that happen. We've got to show it works. We've got to make the moral effort to put the case for a more cooperative approach and greater solidarity in dealing with global problems. I found this very profound coming from you because the key thing about nationalism, as you say, is also this idea that developed in the last couple of years that a nation state is something that can exist, should exist, 
and should be the sort of essential repository of sovereignty and a kind of the essential building block of the global community. And you're someone who has run a nation state. You had a nuclear arsenal. Very few people have been on paper as powerful and a guardian of our sovereignty as you. And yet you're sitting here saying, look, I've been there. The nation state is not what it's cracked up to be. We can't solve these problems just through taking back control. Yes, but I do think the nation state and the leaders of nation states can make a huge difference. So you've got the problems which can be solved within your own country. And of course, you're trying to deal with unemployment, economic recession or mortgage repossessions or trying to deal with social care and health and so on. But the range of problems that require a collective approach that involve you working with other countries has grown and it will continue to grow. The pandemic emphasizes that. Who would have thought that the whole of the world would be convulsed after a disease happened in only one country and yet was able to spread to the whole world and perhaps we could have prevented the loss of deaths in a way. So when you look at all the problems we've got to deal with and we'll look at climate change at COP26 in a way that says, look, Britain can't solve this problem on its own. You can't be a free rider and allow other people to solve the problem with us doing nothing. We need to work together with other countries to do so. So yes, I'm not saying that you're not powerful within a nation state. In fact, you've got the ability to do a whole series of different things that are, if you like, common problems that are part of what is happening in your own country. But many of the things happening in your country require collective solutions. And we've got to get the balance right. I'm not calling for some world government that is going to replace nation states. What I'm calling for is getting the balance right and understanding that when nationalist movements say, take back control, everything must be done within our own country, isolate, pursue our self-interest at the expense of what happens internationally, charity begins and ends at home, all these things, that's not good enough anymore. We're affected by what happens elsewhere. Nobody's safe till everybody's safe, as we say in the pandemic. Last thing, there are moments of inspiration from our recent past, whether it's agreements around Antarctica, space, CFCs. You pick out some of these examples of transnational cooperation. Tell us what you think they show us. The Reagan-Gorbachev agreement, when we created an international space station, and it's remarkable. Russia and America are at odds with each other. They're fighting each other in every other area. But every few hours, this international space station is above our heads, getting around the world, and it's manned by an American astronaut and a Russian cosmonaut. And they can't get the space station astronauts up to the space station without using Russian launchers, and they can't staff the space station without American technology. And so if we can actually cooperate in what was probably the biggest area of controversy during the Cold War, the space race, if we can cooperate in space up there in the heavens, surely we can cooperate on Earth. And I take that as one example of where cooperation ought to be uh, extended into other areas and where we've learned that even if people were reluctant to do it initially and Reagan and Gorbachev fought each other over the Cold War, we proved that it can actually work. Now, it worked for CFCs, as you say. It's worked in other areas as well. HIV AIDS, a great success in so many different ways when we actually got the treatments and the drugs around the world through a collective effort. It ought to work with this vaccination. It's so obvious. Since this vaccination was first administered in Britain, two million people have died around the world. So we have the vaccination, scientific genius, the easier task is getting it around the world, and we failed to do so. And so 2 million have died since the vaccination was actually developed and was made available. And that's a real tragedy that ought to be averted. So I can see how cooperation can work, and I gave you many instances of that. So I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful about the future. 
I remember Alfred Lord Tennyson, our great poet, writing this poem, Locksley Hall, 40 years on at the end of his life. And he was getting very pessimistic about the fate of the world. And the poem goes something like, oh, cosmos, chaos, or oh, chaos, cosmos, when will it ever end? And Gladstone, the prime minister at the time, took this unusual step of writing to the poetry magazine, 19th century, and saying of Tennyson's poem that he got it all wrong and he should go back to his first poem, Locksley Hall, not Locksley Hall, 40 years on, the first poem actually entitled Locksley Hall, in which he'd said, dipped into the world as far as the eye could see and saw the vision of the world and the wonder it could be. And Tennyson, of course, wrote Ulysses, to seek, to strive, to find, and not to yield. And perhaps the message of my book, and really of all of us who believe in a more shared future, is to strive to seek and not to yield to nationalism, xenophobia, protectionism, isolationism, all these things that bring us down, and instead to strive for a healthier, fairer, safer, and of course, greener world. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. My dad made me learn that poem when I was little. He decided I had no education and he made me learn that Tennyson Ulysses. So get your boys on that. Make, give them a... <laughs> I don't think um, poetry is, is... My youngest son, if it wasn't a football story, he wouldn't be interested in it. Well, and my oldest son, I think, thinks that 19th century writing is a bit passe. You know, he's, oh, oh, he's, he's into okay. modern literature. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, well, you'll probably find the same. Sure I will. <laughs> Last time I was in Fife, I went to watch Dunfermline play, the Mighty Pars. They won. I'm and the Race Rovers supporter. So I know, I'm, exactly. So it's nearby. And when I was there, everyone was joking about you and how you support the other teams. So. There was a daggers drawn, yes. The, the, um, I'm a shareholder in Wraith Rovers. So my goodness I, me. I started by selling programmes outside Wraith Rovers to make money to get free into the match afterwards. And now you're a shareholder. And now I'm a shareholder, which is an act of charity, not an act of investment. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. The book is called... Seven Ways to Change the World. Seven Ways to Change the World by Gordon Brown. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I feel we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Hi, everyone. Thanks for reaching the end of this podcast. Most of you are probably asleep, so I'm talking to your snoring forms. But anyone who's awake, it would be great if you could do me a quick favour. Head over to wherever you get your podcasts and rate it five stars, and then leave a nice glowing review. It makes a huge difference for some reason to how these podcasts do. Madness, I know, but them's the rules. Then we go further up the charts, more people listen to us, and everything will be awesome. So thank you so much. Now sleep well. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.